is always going to be with the patient. Um, that drives my clinicians crazy because the world revolves around them. Um, but it really, <laughs> the medicine starts with the patient. That's where the diagnosis is happening. So we're in, I think, New York City. I got up at five in the morning. I think we're still here. We're in New York City, okay. Um, we're in New York City, but you know, if, if I'm sitting here and my doctor now calls me and says, hey, Drew, you know, following up on the whatever, um, they're technically, the, the medicine at that point is happening in New York, even though I'm from Delaware and my doctor's in Delaware. Um, so the originating site is going to be wherever the heck I am. Um, and then between, and this is where if any of you work for Medicare, I really want you to listen to me on this point. Um, the between part, a lot of policies and public policies and national policies when it comes to telemedicine still think that distant in between means geography. Like it means that you got to be really far away. No joke, I was born in Anchorage, Alaska. It's probably a rural setting. My folks are still in the Adirondacks, a very rural setting. I could live five minutes from a hospital in one of those rural settings and Medicare will be like, okay, maybe we'll talk about telemedicine. There's no place in Delaware that qualifies as rural and it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so you could be an hour away from the care that you need in southwestern Sussex County, Delaware, where it's a thousand to one chickens to people and Medicare does not care. And more importantly, regardless of where you are geographically, if you think about it sort of logically, either I see a lot of young folks in the room, or I, I'm going to call us young because I consider myself young. Um, you know, we have busy lives too. You know, our barriers to care aren't necessarily that we can't get out of bed. You know, we're, maybe we don't have um, debilitating chronic pain, um, but maybe we have kids and working two jobs or like taking 17,000 courses. Um, you know, these are all barriers. So if we're moving away from geography and starting to think about telemedicine as alleviating and overcoming barriers, that's when we can get into much better public policy around it. Um, and just overall, I say telemedicine is that discrete interaction between a clinician and a patient, but telehealth is a much broader conversation around you've got the discrete interaction, but how are we moving the patient records, what's the training that we're doing, Project Echo, things like where we're taking clinician expertise that's from like South Dakota or wherever, and we're able to use telehealth to broaden out, so it's like virtual grand rounds where you can you don't have to go to South Dakota to learn what the specialties, specialist knows that you can join from afar. So there's all sorts of these remarkable applications. Um, and so it was your fault for letting me go first, but I'll, I'll sort of hand it back over to Iris and you. Did you want Thanks. The next question is for Iris. You know, what are the primary barriers to, to I'm sorry, how would you define a telehealth ready nation? Well, first of all, I think we still have a lot of work to do. We're not there yet. Uh, I think, you know, we're having the conversations, the fact that there's more and more of these types of... Oh, I am the Vice President for Telehealth Services for Northwell Health. I don't know how many people have heard of it, but it's uh, one of the largest health systems in New York State, and it's one of the uh, top 20 nonprofits in the country. Uh, we have an interesting and on-to point in talking about being telehealth ready. Of course, we talk about reimbursement and uh, the Medicare definition of, of a location for a provider. And one of the challenges is in, in having common definitions regardless of the payer, which we're struggling with. And we all know that the private payers follow whatever CMS does. So 
if we can't get them on the right page, we're going to have a difficult time with the rest of it. So that's one barrier. Uh, I will say um, that transition from fee-for-service to, fee to value-based care, um, there was mention in an earlier talk downstairs about that being um, another piece of it. I don't, I think some of the larger health systems are going in that direction, even understanding that that might divert traffic from their facilities to other modes of care, but by redirecting it and um, supporting the community providers, we can get there that way. So there's some plans out there, at least for the larger health systems, where it becomes more challenging is in the smaller standalones, but that's been true for a long time. So I don't think that's a big, uh, as much of an issue as is the um, access capability, and that is, as a country, and this is still a problem in most parts of the country, although upper upstate, north, the north country, they've at least gotten funding to get reliable internet access, right, Wi-Fi, 5G, reliably obtained, and also trying to level the cost of it. So we have to start thinking about that as a national capability. When you go to certain places in Europe, Wi-Fi is everywhere, it's free, you don't need a password to get on it, um, and, you're, and your encryption happens in other areas, and you can just get on and have access to whatever you need. In order for us to really truly be able to give this modality to everybody, we have to get there. And so that's a lot of working with the public and the private sectors that are providing that care. Um, the other thing to think about is the mentality in terms of the access going back to the rural versus um, underserved. I really want to stress that this is the other piece that happens with um, with our CMS services, is that they, sent, they focus on rural areas and I've been up in Albany and I've been trying to say, please change that to underserved because I can be here in the city at Columbia and it can take me 45 minutes to get downtown. If my provider is downtown and I say, I can't, I don't feel well, but I just can't deal with getting down there and I don't have access to some other type of care, What's going to happen to my level of care? It's going to worsen, right? And and then we're going to end up with what we were talking about earlier this morning, and I think it was even during your talk as well, that we're going to have a higher cost for a more complicated run of care, right? So those are some of the things that have to happen for us to be truly telehealth ready. So what I would say in ending on that point is we really have to be involved with our um, government officials and educate them. They really don't understand. It's interesting, I'm part of a regulatory modernization initiative in Albany, um, and when you go up there, there's something called parity. We, New York only has coverage parity, meaning it, an insurance company only has to pay for what they would normally have paid for if it was ordinarily paid for. Does that make sense? If it was delivered in telehealth. Whereas payment parity says pay the same amount for the equivalent care had it been done in person versus telehealth. That cleared everybody? There are states that have payment parity, quite a number of them now. New York isn't one of them. So that's another thing that needs to get corrected.
So we discussed some of the macro issues. Iris, you've run telehealth at Northwell. Um, what are the lessons learned over the last few years? What are the barriers? What are the challenges? And you know, earlier this morning, we talked about the need to change the process of care. And so how does that fit into all that? So um, the biggest barrier had been, um, well, everybody would think it would be reimbursement, but I'm very fortunate that I'm in a health system where, although we're not an ACO yet, we're looking at value-based care and bundled, and we're, our, our, our forte has been in following into the bundled kind of packages where there's no risk loss and starting there. Um, but again, that value recognition and those, um, those common definitions for what provision of care is are some of the barriers. The technology and the interoperability. Um, I know people talk about open APIs, but the bottom line is vendors still have their walls up. Um, and what we've had to do is force our two major vendors into a room because there were just too many platforms out there. Just to give you an idea of how fast things are moving, it's slow and it's fast at the same time. If you look at large organizations and the way healthcare moves in this country, it's pretty slow, really, with regard to the pace of technology versus what we actually do with it. Um, so we had, you know, there was a little bit of home care, there was a little bit of telestroke, there was a little bit of this and that, and then I came along and I became the director of ops for tele-ICU. Well, now there were all these different pieces of software, all these different pieces of hardware, nothing talked to anything else, so on a continuum of care, you had a blockade in every single point. So if a patient had a stroke, they were being treated on this level of equipment, they went to another part in the hospital, it was another level, and one day I said, this is madness, we can't continue. We're the consumer. Why are we letting all, and I know there may be vendors here, I apologize, but I'm just telling you this is my passion, is that you can design and have wonderful ideas, but you still need to think about the big picture if we're gonna be patient-centric. So what we did was we called the two largest vendors that we worked with into a room and said, you guys have really gotta start talking to each other, or we may just try to start doing something other than using either one of you. Um, but you know, it was kind of a, a push a little bit, but we got there and they're in the room and they're talking and we expect to have an interoperable solution across the whole continuum from both direct to consumer and our acute care platforms. That's a start, that's a challenge. It doesn't happen that easily. So that's my biggest thing. I, and then what about physician acceptance? So the, uh, and then finally, you're very, very on point with that. The physician acceptance really is related actually backwards to that interoperability because if they have to click in and out of all of these different programs in the middle of a busy day, how many clicks is tolerable for a physician in an office who has protected time for telehealth besides their face-to-face -face visits, right? If it isn't seamless and it isn't easy, it's a poor experience for them too. So we talk about user experience. It's just as important for the provider as it is for the physician. And a lot of them are feeling threatened by, well, if I'm not going to get reimbursed, how am I going to sustain this? So it's we have to look for indirect um, compensation right now for some of this uh, while we work on how we get the physicians reimbursed for their time because their time is as valuable either on camera or as it is in the office. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, so to piggyback on that, so um, I, I think the reason that Iris and I were put on the same panel is because um, Iris works with a, a, a large and, and prolific system. I work with a lot of small practices, so onesies, twosies, kind of small groups. In Delaware, about 72% of primary care is still delivered through small practices. And so if you're thinking about the normal telemedicine, and a lot of you think, and you've probably seen commercials and stuff where, like if you have a cold or a sinus infection or something, or you're just not feeling great, um, you know, we're not quite there yet where they can transplant your heart through telemedicine. So there's pretty basic stuff that they're going to be able to do with you still. Um, and the triage point, I mean, so how many of you listened to the, the, the debate this morning with, where Dr. Gruber actually got to talk and not just listen? Were, any, were you all doing blockchain? Anybody? Want? Okay. Um, so there, there were a couple of points that were brought up. It was, it was what? It was cost, triage, triage access, convenience, and satisfaction was the, the very first speaker, the, the, the EVP from uh, I believe United. Um, and one of these things, and, and I, I, I kind of wish I was up there and like handing you notes, because one of, one of the things that drives me a little bit crazy in the conversation is that from a workforce standpoint, we talk about like just because we've had this new tool that's out there, that all of a sudden there's this shadow workforce of like clone doctors and clone nurses that are just out there. And because we now have an app on our phone, suddenly there's a whole new like 45,000 extra doctors out there to, to plug the hole. There's not. <laughs> all that really happens is that we've created this system now because we get what we pay for. And I don't mean this to be snarky, but we get what we pay for, which means that remember how we said, oh, we like the cost because it's $40 a visit and it's a fixed visit and it's cash. And patients like that because it's a certainty. Right, right now, a lot of us have high deductible plans. It's terrifying to use your health insurance. You go into the health system. I have a daughter who's seven months, seven months old now. I'm still getting a trickle of like $100 here, $200 here, $50 here. I'm like, for the love of God, just tell me how much it was <laughs> and I'll just pay you and leave me alone. I mean, that's the nice thing about a cash practices, here's 40 bucks, I have a sinus infection, fix me. It's fantastic. I get that from, uh, from a patient side. But if we're actually trying to build a system, a healthcare system, where we're integrating uh, uh, telemedicine into your primary care practices, so you can see your doctors, we have to be looking at, again, parity. It can't just be like, oh, like, here's 20 bucks to see a patient that you would otherwise get 60 bucks for seeing in person. Literally no practice would do that. They're a business. <laughs> they don't run, they need to keep their lights on, they have staff, they need to pay themselves. So we're creating a disincentive to use telemedicine, it's just not going to happen in terms of your standard sort of continuity of care that runs from my onesie twosie docs that help your primary care up to Iris's system who will transplant your heart probably. You do that, right? Yeah. So. If we're talking about system-based care and we want to drop telemedicine inside of it, it's got to fit into that model because right now all that we've done is created an incentive for those who don't actually see care right now. We've created like the Uber slash walk-in clinic of telemedicine where a doctor signs a contract and says, you know, I'll see 10 of your patients, Mr. Direct-to-Consumer Model, and when I have time, I'll sort of flip my Uber light on and you can start sending a couple patients to me because I had a cancellation. They're not a brand new doctor. They just had you know 20 minutes on their schedule you know and so if we can take that 20 minutes and instead of seeing just some patient they're then able to connect with one of their patients we're back into continuity of care and we're dropping telemedicine into the system which is where it needs to stem from you know you should be able to see your doctor you should be able to connect with your healthcare system and right now we're failing horribly at that except in Delaware where we have, where we have parity <laughs> uh, so do that in your state <laughs>
And uh, I'm going to do one more question, then we'll open it up to the audience. So we'll have 10 minutes. Um, briefly, briefly. Andrew, brief, briefly. Um, could you give us an update on the reimbursement in terms of Medicare, the Chronic Care Act, and then briefly in terms of Medicaid and the complexity associated with it. Yeah, I, this is a topic that would take hours, but there's no one insurance company. We don't have single payer. We have, you know, we have Medicare, which is a federal program, so states can't touch it. Medicare is Medicare, and we already sort of bemoan the fact that they still think telehealth is rural, which is dumb. Um, you have Medicaid, which does have some flexibility state by state, um, and so Delaware's telehealth system actually got up and running in Medicaid because they said, hey, listen, we have a lot of patients that aren't showing up. You know, we can use telehealth to bridge those barriers. You've got your commercial payers, which are sort of regulated by a state, um, and those you can basically go in by law or reg and say, hey, do parity. But then we've got a huge gap when it comes to your self-insured plans. So I work for a law firm that's self-insured. Um, our law firm has signed a contract with a direct-to-consumer, so I can I have access to telemedicine, but if I try to use telemedicine with my doctor, they don't pay for it. And so I actually need to like go to my own HR office and get them to go to their third-party administrator and fix their freaking benefits because the state can't tell them what to do. Um, so we've got these weird little pools and it's still fractured, but we are getting there. Okay, great. And we have time for one question. <laughs> Any questions Any out questions? there? How do we fix the reimbursement model? Uh, that's not an easy thing to do. I say, you know, we certainly have. I mean, well, I mean, obviously, I think there's a lot of education that has to happen. Um, I, I, I can tell you, as it's, as an example, having been in Albany last fall and talking about um, the parity, for example, that the gentleman sitting in the room had no idea what parity meant, regardless of the type. So, if people are signing into law stuff they don't even understand, we have to really have a grassroots campaign, and we have to educate our consumers, our public, and everybody that's delivering the care because it's a big nut to crack. I think, you know, the data stream is really important. What, what CMS is asking for now is give me the data. They finally said it's okay. We're going to pay for um, renal failure. We're going to pay uh, at-home dialysis, and we're going to pay for stroke because telestroke's been around for a long time. We have a lot of compelling data that says it works. Okay, we're going to give you your reimbursement. We're going to give it to you at the same rate as it would be anyway. But that's only two. We know it's working elsewhere. So the data from all of the larger health systems should help. Uh, I just like to. Yeah, the only thing I'd add is call, call your U.S. Senator and tell him to fix Medicare. <laughs> well, I, I hate to cut you off because this is a great topic. I will tell you from my own experience, there is one insurance carrier in Jacksonville, Florida, that does pay parity, that does pay for telemouth, telehealth for the same as an office visit. And the way it was approved is the home health agency went to them and said, look, we're going to do this and we want you to approve it because we've demonstrated that it works. I, just, I, I would just tell you one thing, and that is that you have to sit down with the payers too. The private companies, we've been sitting down and meeting with them and they're, and they're starting to sign on. Yeah. So that that's helpful. Yeah. We wish we had more time, but we have to move on, unfortunately, to the next subject. Rajiv? 